I love it. You know, it happens often that my sermon gets preached before I actually get up to preach it. Uh, but this morning it was, it was the songs, it was Dan, it was Warren, it's, uh, <clears throat> and the other things in the service. Um, but what you see is the Holy Spirit moving to orchestrate what he wants to do here. And um, so this morning we've been looking at prophetic concepts and metaphors and, and what the Lord put on my heart to share this morning was uh, the metaphor of clothing and being clothed by God in, in prophecy and in scripture. And uh, yeah, the, you know, um, there's, a, there's a famous saying, clothes make the man, right? Which reminds me, happy Father's Day. And uh, how many of you got your dad a tie for Father's Day? <clears throat> Hopefully nobody got me one for Father's Day. Cause... But if they did, I'm, I'd be happy with it, yeah. Can't guarantee I would wear it, but I'd be happy with it. <clears throat> but uh, have you ever gone somewhere and found that you were inadequately dressed for the occasion? I'm just thinking of one time when I was a first-year teacher here, just out of college, and Cods was having a dance down at the fellowship building. I wasn't involved in planning it or anything. It was a Friday night, and I lived by myself. Well, I lived at the Kennedy's house. Um, <clears throat> I decided, oh, I'll, I'll pop over there. So I went over there in my sweatpants and T-shirt, <laughs> went in the door of the fellowship building, and like everybody's dressed in dress clothes and ties and suits. And I'm like, oh, okay, I think I'll go back and watch Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> I was not dressed appropriately for that event. Uh, I was assuming just it would be like my high school dances, you know, so we jump around, you wear sweatpants or jeans or whatever. Um, but I was wrong. And, uh, well, I'm thinking of something else. Maybe you've seen news story, stories about uh, during quarantine, people that uh, appeared on camera and they... They were dressed uh, more casually than they should have been. Uh, I'm thinking about Good Morning America, a reporter appeared on camera and he wasn't wearing pants. <clears throat> and he was live on TV in his underwear. He had a shirt and tie and the camera angle was wider than he had expected. And it was actually pretty hilarious. Um, you know, have you ever had a, a nightmare about being naked in public. Like, oh, that, that is not acceptable. There is no way uh, you can do what you're supposed to do when you're not properly dressed. And uh, there are a lot, you could, we could preach all year about this topic of what's in the Bible about being clothed. Let me throw out a few examples here. Psalm 93.1, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, firm and secure. Psalm 109, 29. May my accusers be clothed with disgrace and wrapped in shame as in a cloak. Isaiah 52. Awake, awake, Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Isaiah 61, we just heard this one. I delight greatly in the Lord. 
My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And 2 Corinthians 5, 1-4 is a different look at it. We know, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up with life. So what does the metaphor mean in the Bible about being clothed? Uh, there are both literal uses of it, obviously, and there are a lot of figurative metaphorical uses of clothing with different, even different meanings about it. The samplings that we just heard uh, touched on being clothed with majesty, strength, disgrace, shame, splendor, salvation, righteousness, a mortal physical body, or an immortal heavenly body. I mean, just in those few, and I'm just scratching the surface of what's in the, what's in the scripture. So, while there are varying uses of clothing, of the idea of clothing, it can signify anything which covers us. And clothing often represents the standing that we have before God. And we see in Scripture the right clothing we need can only be given to us through covenant with our God. And uh, so start out with a question here. Uh, when did nakedness become a problem? And what's wrong with it? I mean, uh, we talked about the TV reporter. It was not acceptable for him to report in, uh, while he was in his underwear at home, right? Uh, it brought shame on, hopefully it brought shame on him. Uh, one thing is nakedness allows exposure to danger. Uh, you wouldn't want to go into battle naked, right? Uh, what else would you not want to do naked? Ride a motorcycle? Don't want to uh, slide on the pavement that way. How about walk through a patch of poison ivy? Clothes are useful if that happens. Or play airsoft. Hmm. Hike out in a blizzard? Or freezing cold? Fall asleep in the sun? Uh-uh. So, uh, so being naked means being unprotected. And uh, nakedness carries shame. Now, originally, Adam and Eve were naked with one another and with God and felt no shame. That's clear in, in uh, Genesis chapter 2, right? Uh, the, the commentary Barnes notes on the Bible comments about this innocence. It says, of nakedness, in our sense of the term, they, they had as yet no conception. On the contrary, they were conscious of being sufficiently clothed in a physical sense by nature's covering, the skin, 
And in a spiritual point of view, they were clad as in a panoply of steel with the consciousness of innocence or indeed the unconsciousness of evil existing anywhere and the simple ignorance of its nature except so far as the command of God had awakened in them some speculative conception of it. Hence, they were not ashamed. For shame implies a sense of guilt which they did not have and an exposedness to the searching eye of a condemning judge from which they were equally free. And I think that's a big thing right there. Adam and Eve had no concept of the eyes of a condemning judge upon them when they were in the garden because there was nothing in them to be judged or condemned about. And therefore, they were naked and unashamed. However, we all know that their disobedience to God's command brought guilt on them, and that changed everything. Uh, let me read from Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 6. <clears throat> when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, this is not a fact-finding mission for God. He, he already knew what happened, right? But I think what, what strikes me in this, do you see God's tone here? He doesn't come at them and say, what in the world went on, has gone on here? You know, you stupid people, you ruined my creation already. That's, that's, not, that's not his attitude, right? It didn't surprise him. He knew it was going to happen even before he created Adam and Eve. Do you see his tone here? It is, it is a tone of love and, and concern for them and desiring to fix the problem that's, that's occurred here. Um, and we're going to see that throughout Scripture. The Lord God, uh, skipping to verse 21, it says, Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So you see what God does in that situation where they sin. He does address the sin, but his heart is to help them with this problem. His heart is to clothe them. He brings a solution to the problem. Uh, we know that it goes far beyond that to the cross um, for what he did. Now, many say that as God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, he was showing them how to sacrifice. They proposed that maybe that was a, a lamb or a sheep that, was, uh, that was, had to die in order to clothe Adam and Eve. And that, that's certainly possible. 
Um, but what we do know for sure is that their own attempts to cover their nakedness and shame were totally inadequate. Right? We can guess on what kind, how they put together fig leaves, but whatever it was, uh, wasn't acceptable. And they needed God's provision to do that, right? And that's the key. The right clothing provided came through covenant with God. And that's the heart of our message this morning. Because we're all in the same predicament. We're all hopelessly cut off from God because of our own guilt. And we're all unable to remedy the situation, although we try. Think about it. When, you know, if you ask a lot of people in the world today, what if you were to die tonight and appear before God in heaven? What would, and he asks you why you should be there, what? What should you say? What would you say? And most people are going to say, yeah, because I was a pretty good person. And that's, that's kind of the fallback human nature, right? But that's, that's completely inaccurate. And that's not, a, not an acceptable answer. Um, we're... We are unable to live up to our purpose. We were created as God's image bearers to rule the earth and extend his kingdom on earth. And our sin and shame puts us in an unacceptable position. Just as if I were up here in my bathing suit and nothing else, uh, it would be unacceptable. I would not be able to complete this preaching assignment, right? (laughs) It just wouldn't work. Or the TV reporter sitting in his underwear he is not going to be able to do his job effectively. Um, nobody's going to pay attention to what he's saying. Or his credibility <laughs> is, is not uh, believable. So, you know, Isaiah 59 is a scripture that paints a very vivid picture of our dilemma. But it also shows us God's plan and points us to his salvation. So I want to read that through the whole chapter this morning and uh, just look at it, meditate on the things it's saying and listen to, the, to it as a whole. It's kind of a lament of the human situation but also um, telling about God and his, his ability to overcome what we have done. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. That's not saying that God isn't love. That's just telling the truth about sin. God is holy. We sang it many times this morning. And sin cannot be in God's holy presence. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Lots of metaphors in in the scripture here today. Today's, you you know, that is a... That's a description of today's situation in, in, the, in our world. Um, but we see also that 
our situation today is really not different than any other time in the history of humankind. Verse 5, they hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. That's, that's a great image right there about our own works of righteousness. <laughs> Try to clothe yourself with spider webs and see how well that works. Um, Spider-Man may be able to do better at it. I don't know. But their deeds are evil deeds. And acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks among them will know peace. So justice is far from us. That's a sad statement. And righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. Isn't that true? Go on Facebook. We all growl like bears. <laughs> Anger. We mourn mournfully like doves. Self-pity. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. It's a sad picture. It's a convicting picture because it's true. Um, despite all mankind's attempts, we're devoid of righteousness and guilty before God. When we try to be righteous, we're not. If the passage ended here, everything would be hopeless. Fortunately, it doesn't. God intervenes on our behalf. Verse 16. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. That's a, that's a powerful word. God was appalled. He looked at humankind. He looked at your life, my life, and he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. That's a powerful word too, to intervene. That God would think that somebody must intervene in this situation to bring, bring salvation. 
So his own arm achieved salvation for him. That's a good place to shout hallelujah, as Warren would say. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Here's God getting dressed. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. Okay, so there is justice. Justice involves that, right? Does that mean the people who sin against us are our enemies? No, people of God did not make people to be his enemies. His enemies, they, he does have enemies, spiritual enemies, uh, and people who re, the people who refuse to repent and stick with his spir spiritual enemies will end up being his enemies too. But that's not his heart towards us. Verse 19, from the west, people will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising sun, they will revere his glory. That's a nice way of saying all humanity, all of the earth. Uh, God is calling into covenant with him, not just Israel anymore. The Gentiles. And... For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. Verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion. Who's that? That's Jesus. To those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you. That sounds like New Testament. That's the Old Testament. It says the same thing. This was God's plan all along. And my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips. Hallelujah. His law will be written on our hearts because the Holy Spirit will be in us. On the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants. I'll take that promise. Amen. From this time on and forever, says the Lord. Happy ending, hallelujah. For those who repent and, and come into covenant with God. Now listen to how those last two verses are echoed in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. Words uh, about Peter, after Peter spoke in his sermon. In Acts 2, 37 to 39, it says... When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. that sound familiar? <laughs> That's the same promise. One is Old Testament form and one is New Testament form. For you, for your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Is the Lord our God calling you? 
Has he called us? Amen. Has he called your children? Your grandchildren? Amen. Those who haven't been born yet? Amen. Your neighbors? The people in the trailer parks around us? Those in government that we complain about? The communists over in China? And the Muslims in the Middle East? Yeah, he's called all of us. We're all in the same boat. But God found it unacceptable. And so what we could not do, God works salvation by his own mighty arm. He clothed himself with righteousness and the helmet of salvation. Hallelujah. So it's the Lord who works redemption. The new covenant made by the blood of Jesus is entered into how? Through repentance of sin and through faith in Jesus Christ, right? And is sealed on us by the Holy Spirit um, in us. Hallelujah. And as Peter boldly declared before the Jewish council uh, by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 4, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So when you go out witnessing and talk to people about Jesus, and many of them these days, at least in our culture, will say, yeah, I think actually all religions lead to the same God. That's a lie. That's a lie. There's no other name besides Jesus because he's the one who sacrificed himself to make a covenant with God for, <clears throat> for us. The later in Isaiah, Scripture addresses our failure, the failure of our human attempts to clothe ourselves with righteousness. We cannot rely on our own actions to become righteous. Isaiah 64, verse 5. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways, but when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? That's the question. That's, that's what the people in Jerusalem asked Peter on the day of Pentecost. How then can we be saved? What should we do? All of us have become like one is, who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name and strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. But the Lord desires to remove our filthy rags, just like he desired to clothe Adam and Eve in their nakedness and shame, and clothe us instead with what? The righteousness of Christ. The Lord is for us. Amen? He's not against us. He desires to qualify and equip us to be his priests and representatives on earth. How can we effectively be his witnesses and share the gospel and bring the kingdom on earth if we are not convinced of our righteousness in God's sight, that he is for us, right? But there's a, the problem is that, that we do sin, right? 
But we have to know that we are in covenant with God and those sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. But it's not anything else that we can do. People try all kinds of things to make themselves more righteous in God's sight. But the only thing that can clothe us with righteousness is the blood of Jesus and faith in him. Uh, there's a scene depicted in the, by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 3. I'll read the story. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. So this is, Joshua is the high priest, the first high priest when Israel came back from captivity in Babylon. Okay. And he is trying to establish the ministry of the temple in a Jerusalem, the rebuilt Jerusalem. And Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And that's what Satan means, uh, an adversary, uh, one who accuses. The Lord said to Satan, then this is the first word of the whole thing, right? <laughs> so the Lord takes charge and he says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. He gets the first word and he says, I've chosen this man and these people. And even before you come to accuse, I rebuke you. The Lord rebukes him. Is this not a man, is, this, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? So here, here's God's heart again. He's like, you're trying to accuse and destroy the one that I've just saved. I've just snatched him out of the fire. He's talking about Joshua the high priest, but he's also talking about his whole people. And he's saying, you're coming to say how dirty he is. Of course he's dirty. I've just snatched him out of the fire. He's black. Black with soot. But I've snatched him out of the fire and I will clean him up. And uh, a question for us. Well, first, do you see yourself that way? When you find a little soot on yourself that you've been snatched out of the fire? And do we see people, each other, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, even the unbelievers around us, our neighbors, uh, those believers in the other church, maybe even the Catholic church or some church like that, as those God has snatched from the fire of people that Jesus has died for. I mean, sure, we hate the sin. Okay? Kathy and I <clears throat> camped out a couple of nights at uh, Washington State Park, and uh, you see a real cross-century cross-section of the culture there and uh, there are some things there that were not pretty to see or listen to uh, but these are all people that Jesus died for we hate the sin but we love the sinners you know why because God does and God first loved us verse 3 now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. I love it. Zechariah gets, into the, <laughs> gets excited and he joins in. Put a clean turban on his head. 
So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord, and by the way, when it says the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, a lot of times that's talking about Jesus. That's talking about God himself, not just a messenger servant of God, but uh, this is talking about God himself in bodily form. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. So it talks about walking in obedience, and this is another sermon about being clothed with righteousness. But that is the fact that, that when we are made righteous in God's sight, we are empowered to live righteously. It's a symptom of being made righteous with God, but that's a different sermon. Um, so the priest ministers before God on behalf of himself and all the people seeking God's mercy and help. But here was Joshua accused by Satan because Satan wants nothing more than to stop the ministry of reconciliation, the forgiveness of sins of the people that God has made. That's his, that's his chief ambition. And, uh, and so to discredit the high priest, the, the one who goes between can cut that off short circuit what God wants to do. He, so Satan was there. He was seeking to resist and hinder Joshua's ministry as a high priest. How can a sinful person minister as a priest before God and bring his forgiveness and rule to the people? Well, the Lord sees a way. The Lord saw a way and he made a way for that to happen. And... Uh, to make him righteous and enable him to minister. And he, does, he still does the same for us because Joshua was a high priest back then, but what are we called in Christ? As a kingdom of priests, right? The royal priesthood. And that is that we are to go between God and the world who is yet to believe and be his ministers and take the gospel and make disciples. So... Um, Pay close attention to what he says here because he's speaking about you and me as well. And uh, also get ready for lots more metaphors in these next couple verses. Verse 8, listen, high priest Joshua and saints at COC, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. That little phrase there is talking about Pentecost. That's talking about that we are now the priesthood of believers. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. Who's the branch? That's Jesus, of course. And uh, he's, he was the new shoot growing out of the stump of King David's family. You ever, you ever cut down a tree and it's dead, it's gone, right? But a new tree grows out of it. Uh, maybe in, you're familiar with the little garden over outside between the church and the school there. There was a magnolia tree that was there, and it, was, it grew to be a really good size. It was a beautiful tree. And then, I don't know, five or six, seven years ago, that we had a really rough winter, a really cold winter, 
and that tree died, and so did most of the hedge around the chapel here. And, uh, and so that spring, I got out with a saw and cut down that tree because it was all dead. It was fro frozen to death. And shoots grew up, and I just let them grow. And now, if you see it now, it's probably bigger than it was before. It's got five trunks instead of, <laughs> instead of one because I let five of them grow, but it grew back. And this is a picture of Jesus, the branch, right? Because he's the shoot that came out of the wreckage of King David's family. Uh, but he grew to... Um, become the eternal king from David's family and we are part of his kingdom. So, uh, you know, some, some prophecies are easy to interpret after they've been fulfilled. Uh, well, let me keep reading in verse 9. See, the stone, who's the stone? Jesus. The stone the builders rejected, the chief cornerstone. I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Right, that's the one that's easy to interpret. What day was that? <laughs> the day that Jesus died. I think it was Friday, but uh, the day that Jesus died on the cross on Calvary. God removed the sin of the land that day. The eternal sacrifice was made. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. What's that about? Hospitality? It includes hospitality, but it's talking about, to me, it's, it's uh, uh, describing the day that we now live in, that day when we invite the world around us to share in the righteousness and salvation that God has freely given to us. Uh, sit under our vine. Who is the vine? Jesus. He's the vine. We are the branches. And fig tree, the kingdom of God, the one that sustains us. Uh, and we are inviting the nations and the people around us to sit under in the, to be part of the family and the kingdom that God has brought us into. Um, this year at COC, our goal is to ultimately focus on contending for souls in evangelism and discipleship. And it's impossible for us to do so without being daily clothed in Jesus' righteousness through the covenant of his blood shed for us. Raise your hand if you agree. Amen. And uh, neither we nor those to whom we minister can rely on our own works to close ourselves for right standing and effective service before God. But by the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, we become agents of God's redemption and reconciliation in the world. We are holy in God's sight. Hallelujah. Amen. So, like I said before, today we're just barely scratching the surface about the metaphor of clothing in Scripture. There are other lessons to be taken. But I wanted to start with a foundation, and that's the foundation 
that he is our righteousness and it's only through covenant with him through Jesus Christ that we are clothed with righteousness. Our shame and nakedness is taken away and we are empowered to be uh, the ministers, the priests that God has intended us to be in the world. And we are filled with the Holy Spirit and enabled to walk in the ministry of Jesus. And not only that, but we are adorned as a beautiful, pure bride of Christ. In Revelation 7, 9, I'll just close with that one. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You think about that often? Because we're going to be there at one point, one day. God willing. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. He's the one who bared his arm to do it because none of us else, none of the rest of us could. And there's no human being, Muhammad or the Buddha or anybody else that could do it. But only our God, Jesus Christ, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Hallelujah. Amen. So, now as we celebrate communion, that's, that's a perfect time to think about what we've been talking about. You know, there is a wedding coming. No, I'm not talking about that one. Um, but uh, there's, a, there's a wedding that we just read about of the Bride of Christ. And we have to be pure to be the Bride of Christ. And from just thinking about the past week, you may say, I'm not, I haven't been pure in the last week. But what have we been saying this morning? It's, it's the covenant that Jesus has made with us that makes us pure and righteous in God's sight. And we are clothed with righteousness. And just like we see that picture of the high priest Joshua having his torn and dirty rags taken off of him, and being clothed. And it was God's desire that that happened. And it was God's work and it was God's plan that, that he was made righteous. And so we also are made righteous. Um, but we live in kind of a paradox that we are righteous and yet we do fail on a daily basis. But we come through repentance and faith in what Jesus did for us the one time and remind ourselves that we have been made righteous so that we can go out and minister effectively, that we can walk in the righteousness of Christ. And that's what we're doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, to remember what I have, what I have done for you.